welcome back to Open to Truth. My name's Clinton. Hi, I'm Tony. And guys, we have a really special guest today. His name's Jared Bias. Uh, he's the co-host of the wildly popular Bible for Normal People podcast, co-author of the book Genesis for Normal People, and he's got a new book coming out. We saw the title and the tagline. We're really excited about it. It's called Love Matters More. comes out September 8th, and we just wanted to get uh, Jared's take on uh, some of the ideas in this book. We've, I mean, both been really impacted by what he and his co-host Pete are oh, doing absolutely. on the podcast. Um, so really pleased to bring you Jared Bias. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I got to say the, um, I mean, the moment I saw the title of your book, uh, it it gripped me because we've, I mean, our regular listeners will know that we've we've talked a fair bit about I mean, we value free speech, especially in the sort of Christian and evangelical realm, like the ability to just discuss different ideas without getting fired up, bent out of shape and like, and really sacrificing love at the expense of being right in a given situation. So um, really excited to dive in with you on sort of the content of your book. Yeah. So before we get into some specifics, just give our audience a snapshot, like, who are you? Uh, what's your what's your story? You've been a podcaster, a pastor, a professor of philosophy and biblical studies. So, let us know kind of the trajectory of that journey. Yeah, so I grew up in a in a small town in Texas, Amarillo, Texas, and uh, grew up in a pretty religious family, primarily Southern Baptist mm. and uh, charismatic. So it went back and forth. My dad would have been more Southern Baptist. My my mom would have been charismatic. My grandmother is kind of a a charismatic minister. She travels around and, and does ministry for women and uh, other things. So that's kind of my, my upbringing and background. I started going to a Presbyterian church by myself when I was in high school because I, I just gravitated toward a more intellectual a way of thinking about faith. Hmm. And that seemed to be natural for me. So I started going there with the intention of eventually going to Westminster Seminary. It's what I had wanted to do since I was a kid, as you know, most young kids want to go right. and get PhDs in presuppositional apologetics, I assume. <laughs> so uh, I did. I went there, uh, but I, I stopped off at Liberty. So I went to Liberty University and got a degree in philosophy, and then uh, went to Westminster. Was a pastor for a while, and then went uh, to be a professor for a while. And yeah, that's kind of been the journey. And now my official connection to the uh, to the institution of of Christianity, besides being a podcaster, is a, a Sunday school teacher. So. Right. Very cool. How long were you a pastor? What does that mean? Were you leading a church or on staff somewhere as one of the lower level peons or how did that work? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so if, when I was in college, I was an associate uh, pastor. I would have led music and children's ministry, youth ministry, basically everything. But Wait, all at the, once. With, yes. Yes. Oh my so gosh. It was, uh, yeah. So it was kind of the catch all for what the senior pastor didn't want to do. He had a full time job besides being a pastor. Wow. So I was there to kind of be the main administrator and other things yep. of that congregation when I was in college. Um, and I didn't get I didn't get paid anything except uh, I got paid the parsonage. So my wife and I got mm. to live there for free. So right. that was nice. Um, and then, uh, yeah, eventually I when I was uh, going to seminary, we started going to a pretty basic non-denominational megachurch kind of scenario up uh, our way and was... Uh, my wife encouraged me not to get too involved too quickly, so I tried my best to do that, but I'm not good at that. Mm -hmm. So I, I started actually playing percussion 
Okay. Uh, I, I played percussion. Then I ended up playing guitar. Then I ended up kind of filling in as a worship yeah, leader every once in a while. Happens, and then <laughs> became an associate uh, kind of person for the summer. Then became the right-hand man of the pastor of that smaller gathering. And then became, uh, yeah, then came on staff as one of five teaching pastors there at the church. So, um, and I did that for a number of years. I don't know how long total, maybe five, six years. So was was being a pastor something you wanted from your teen years? I mean, you were setting out to seminary, but you got a degree in philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Typically, uh, if you get a degree in philosophy and want to get a PhD in presuppositional apologetics, pastoral ministry is not usually at the front of your mind. So, <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, no, no, that wasn't my intention, but uh, it was, I think, a good fit. And I think it was really important because I was so intent on knowing stuff and it was so abstract yeah. and so out there ministry brought together this idea that, oh, we're talking about human beings, and this is a community, this is a civic endeavor, this is about people, uh, which I had always heard, but my personality didn't lend itself to land, really, until I was a pastor, and it had real effects. And frankly, uh, I hurt a lot of people because Mm -hmm. of my need to be right, my need to teach everyone the right way, Um, and so it's through those painful experiences, really, that the book uh, came about. And when you say you you had this... um you know, this hunger for knowledge and need to be right. Was was that more from a place of just curiosity or from a place of like insecurity? If I'm if I just have the right answers and if I just align my mental furniture right, then I'll be okay. What was driving that? I think it was probably yeah, that's a good question. I think it was equal parts. Okay. Um you know, not to psychologize my childhood, but I wonder if that curiosity came from that first need to uh feel in control yeah. and feel secure. But yeah, definitely uh, my personality was one that needing to feel like I was in control and that helped when you know things because you can kind of be above it and and know the lay of the land. Especially if you know more than anyone else in the room, right? Right. That's helpful too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So with the title of your book, Love Matters More, I think it kind of wants the audience to ask the question, well, more than what? I I think I have an inkling of what you're going to say, but... Just in case anyone's in the dark about it, what does love matter more than? I think for me, the, the real answer is everything. Wow. Um, love matters more than everything. I think within the context of this book, it's more than uh, the church, more than my need to belong. But ultimately, it's really about it matters more than getting things right. Um, mm. And that's, you know, the, the subtitle, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus, kind of explores this a need I feel like we have to stand up for truth, stand up for God, stand up for ourselves, and how those get really blurry, and how does that mix with this message of love that we find particularly in the New Testament and through the message of Jesus? Right, so I could hear someone asking, well, Jared, wait, can't can't we value both of them at the same time? Uh, I think of Richard Rohr and his, uh, his material on non-dual thinking or both-and thinking, Try to find, mm-hmm. if things seem like they're intention, try to find a way to bring them together when they don't like logically mutually exclude one another. So could, couldn't it be that love and truth matter equally? How, how would you sure. respond to yeah, someone that's so. having that thought? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a, I think there's a, there's a, might I, I don't want to say it this way, but maybe there's a simplistic way of doing that. Mm-hmm which I would say is, is the non-Richard Rohr way of doing this, which is we just hold these things together and we don't actually talk about how they relate to each other. Mm. They just, yeah, they are together. And that's how I would have grown up with this relationship between truth and love. And practically what mattered 
in my tradition was we said love and truth mattered most. Like they were the two horses leading us on our chariot to, you know, fulfillment. But what ended up happening was truth was the, the emphasis always fell on truth. Mm. So while in theory we talked about them mattering equally, in practice they didn't matter equally. So first of all, I think that's important is if we're going to say let's like make them equal matter equally uh, matter, then let's in, in practice have them equally matter. Mm. And the other challenge is you run into really practical situations where, um, yeah, okay, so let's let's stay on that first one because I think there's a difference between truth mattering and me standing up for truth yeah, mattering. Yeah, totally, totally. I think those are two different things. Um, but secondly, if I can jump over and get a little more complicated, sure. I would say an integrative approach, kind of what you see, mean by Richard Rohr's non-dualistic thinking, is is really what I'm trying to do in the book, which is to say, I think if we look at the biblical text in its context and we look at current culture, I would say that truth and love are in a lot of ways the same thing. <laughs> that how most people use those words mean they mean the same thing by them. And yeah. that's a tricky it's tricky because I think for a long time we've put them against each other in this uneasy relationship, but I think there's a way that we can actually integrate them more fully than just kind of saying yeah, they're both equal, mad, like they both are, are equally as important. We don't really know how to do that, though. Yeah, yeah, and in terms of the truth sometimes being emphasized over the love and practice, there's that passage from Scripture in Ephesians that you mentioned all throughout the book, really, um, of speaking the truth in love. And boy, how that's been abused over sure. over time. Just, I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast, but though, but just anecdotally, yeah, there was a good, I mean, probably the first 25 years of life, but right in that college time, you know, I, I lived out that speaking the truth in love where truth came first. And I genuinely thought it's the most loving thing I could do for you to tell you either how wrong you were or at my most charitable moments, like there is a th threat of hell or something. And it's, a huge problem that's need facing to warn you, you about that. and not me, of course. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, and so, like, there, there's this uh, mall in downtown Cleveland called Tower City, and there's this beautiful courtyard outside. You know, just imagine an outdoor downtown public space. We would rent out a, uh, get a permit to do the public open air preaching, and I'm out there with my little tracks. If you die tonight, where will you go, heaven or hell? And I'm sure that. Basically, no one walked away from that feeling loved by me. They yeah. felt judged uh, that I was a know-it-all. Damned. I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm just a dumb 16-year-old kid at the time. Like, probably just, like, yeah. almost pity on me, I'm right. sure, many of the adults. Right. Um, Jared, have you had any experiences of that uh, from your upbringing or even years of adulthood where you felt like you were doing that as well, like speaking the truth in love where you emphasized the truth telling without loving. Yeah, that's my whole life. Yeah, for sure. That was absolutely. That was yeah. how best I knew how to love people was to teach them. Yeah. And I think there was that and what I want to emphasize too is I don't think our motives are always in the wrong place for that. I think we have to recognize the difference between intention and impact. I think for me, I was truly trying to love people well. I was just misguided. Um, and and I, I didn't realize the impact of, of how I was going about it, and, and it wasn't producing the kind of thing that I thought it would, that I was frankly taught that it would. Can, can I ask, so obviously, you know, we're talking here about 
love and truth and our podcast is called Open to Truth. So truth is something that we pursue and we want to think rightly about things like like the example I gave Clint earlier. You know, I want to think rightly about traffic and tigers and, you know, dangers and I want to navigate the world as best that I can and thinking clearly helps with that. But I wonder if the crux of what you're saying is, is like you said, it, it's not so much that truth matters more, but the way we stand up for truth. And, and my experience has been that, man, people can feel so threatened by ideas. Uh, so we, we did a series at our church. I kind of led the charge on this a few years ago called Disagreeing Agreeably. It's like a three-week mm-hmm. series, and I wanted to walk through how do we talk about the gray areas or the peripheral areas in Christianity that there's different thoughts on. Um, and, and, and how it, do we love each other in the midst exactly, of like, disagreeing about it? Yeah, how yeah. can we disagree with each other but not at the expense of loving one another? And... Uh, Man, I think the point was largely missed because it definitely ruffled feathers. Um, and uh, and I know that I had some people who were absolutely furious with me and some of the ideas that I had, you know, talked about from the stage. Um, and it, it was clear that something, their response was a, a response to a threat in some way. That's what it seemed like, is like that the ideas you're talking about are dangerous um, and that's why it causes this sort of reaction in them of the their map of the world is being threatened or their you know the way they orient themselves is being threatened. I wonder, do you have any insight on, on why it's so difficult for people to have level-headed, loving conversations where we disagree with one another? Why do things escalate and get emotional the way that they do? Yeah, I mean, I don't I'm no uh, psychologist or expert, but I would have a few ideas when we look at, in my world of, of philosophy, we have about 500 years we'd call the modern era, right? So modern ways of thinking, which start with the Renaissance and uh, the Reformation and explosions in science and all of these kinds of things, where we have this 500-year habit of privileging ideas over embodiment, hmm. over emotion. And when we privilege those things, they become more central to our identity and when you start poking at people's identity, yeah. they inevitably will get upset and defensive because you're not just talking about something that doesn't matter to them. You're talking about something that's central to who they are. Yeah. You're threatening the very idea of their perception of themselves. Yeah. And so when I talk about love matters more, I'm also talking about it in that meta sense that the I think the only way we can get at these relationships is when we start privileging things like our feelings, our connectedness, um, we start privileging those equal to our intellect and our ideas and getting things right. I mean, Christianity has run afoul of this more than almost any other institution in that, for me at least, I'll speak for my tradition, growing up, that was what mattered most, that Mm. you get the ideas of God right. Mm -hmm. There was a checklist of things that you believe. And at the end of the day, if your sin, we'll call it that, if your sin was... Uh, going against some moral code that didn't seem to matter as much as if you got your belief wrong. Absolutely. Wow. We, that seems really true. We can, we can forgive you if you have sex before marriage, but we but forgiveness depends upon first you believing the right things about this God who forgives. If you don't do that first, then nothing is else sounds is forgiven. conditional. <laughs> yeah, it does sound conditional, doesn't it? <laughs> well, even like the... I don't know, the heroes of the faith for like a more conservative or evangelical arena, it seemed like those were champions of theology, 
they had all the their degreed out to the nth degree from yeah. all the top seminaries. Those are the people that we look to rather than it could just be someone at a local church who really is genuinely loving their neighbor and isn't the smartest person in the room, doesn't feel the need to be. Yeah. But we kind of propped up, I think, in modern Christianity, we privileged intellect over virtue. Which is say. fascinating because you, you don't see Jesus doing that. Like, I read this quote recently that God is a mystery, but Jesus' priorities aren't. You know, it was very clear what Jesus' priorities were, and it was people it's, and how you interact with them and how you treat them. And even when he disagreed with people, it, it wasn't about, it was never about, oh, you've got your beliefies wrong. Your metaphysics are incorrect. It's like, mm-hmm. no, you're, you are privileging ideas at the expense of the way you treat people. Um, that was his big criticism of the religious elite, you know? So, mm-hmm. so yeah. I think, uh, I mean, this whole topic of trying to be more loving rather than just being right could span any topic imaginable. Politics, yeah. uh, I don't know, science, or whether to homeschool your kids. Who knows what it is? But I'm pretty interested to how this comes back to issues about the Bible. Because someone might say, well, okay, yeah, I want to live a life of love, and I'm trying to model my life after Jesus, let's say. and But I feel like most of what I know about Jesus comes from the Bible. So I want to be mm-hmm. right about the Bible. That seems important to have some truths lined up that I'm at least getting something right about Jesus so that I can follow him and, and live well and that life of loving. How would you respond to someone that's really worried that these ideas could undermine something about like the absolute truth of the biblical word or is que- that could question its authoritativeness or something mm-hmm. like that? What? How do we kind of navigate that worry? Well, I would never say this in that really in that conversation, probably. But in the back of my mind, I would be thinking: even asking that question already assumes this privileging of the intellect. Mm-hmm. So, because I'm so anxious about that, I've already anchored my mm-hmm. sense of confidence or security in getting the, it right. That's where the anxiety comes from. And so, I would kind of want to go behind that That's and understand why you're even so worried about that. Um, but secondly. I think it's important to realize I, there's a reason I didn't name the book Only Love Matters <laughs> yeah. because truth does matter. I think it's important that we have these things. It's whenever we get our priorities out of whack that the whole thing starts to fall apart. So I think when we put truth as the goal, that becomes an idol and that becomes a, an excuse for not loving people. But if we have love as the goal, truth can be a really important step, right? So if I know what is healthy for my kids, that can be an important part of what it means to love them well. So I'm giving them healthy food. So I'm, you know, yeah. monitoring their screen time. I'm, I'm following kind of the scientific consensus on a lot of these things. So knowledge can actually be an important tool toward love. But when we flip that around, I think is when things get out of whack. Yeah, you use the term idol there. Can you say more about what it means to make something an idol? And in particular, to make something as important as truth into an idol. How does that play it itself out in yeah, our well, lives. Yeah, well, and I I share this in the book, and it's probably one of my greatest, for me, my own personal life kind of insights when reading the Bible was, I was reading a number of years ago, we were probably translating it into English from Hebrew or something like that, but I read this uh, section of the Golden Calf episode in Exodus 32, which, by the way, has a corollary in Jeroboam's reign uh, in Kings. Kings, Jeroboam does the exact same thing. Mm. Um, and in fact, 
Jeroboam's wording is the exact same thing as Aaron's wording in Exodus 32, which makes scholars think there's actually a connection uh, so that the golden calf is, is kind of a jab at Jeroboam and the north. Anyway, oh, that gets cool. us getting wow. nerdy. But no, that's great. So in Exodus 32, Aaron, uh, right, so the, the setting is Moses goes up on the mountain to hear the words of God, and people, because of how God's been acting, I mean, God's pretty erratic, and it, it's just a pretty scary time in the life of Israel. So Moses goes up, and everyone just assumes Moses is done. Like, like the mountain's God's, on fire, basically. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> God's pretty much just taken Moses out. Who knows what he did, but he, he upset God somehow, and so we're done. Now who's going to lead us? You know, we got to keep moving. We got to do something. Aaron's down there kind of freaking out. Okay, what do we do? I don't know. And so it ends up being that they, Aaron says, okay, give, us all, give, give me all your jewelry, and melts it down and creates these golden calves. And interestingly enough, Aaron says, behold... These are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, first of all, it's interesting wow. that he says these are the gods. There's only one, of course. In the Jeroboam, there's two. So that is another reason why we think they're connected. But, wow. um, so, but interestingly enough, these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. So what I was taught, what I was thought, maybe just assumed, was that they set up a different god. And Aaron was trying to get them to worship a different god. Right, like Yahweh. But that's not actually us. what he it took says. out our leader. Let's worship something else. Let's worship the cow. Yeah, yeah I guess right. I would have thought that too. Yeah, me too. But that's not actually what the text says. It says these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Aaron is trying to convince the people that this is Yahweh. Wow. This isn't a different god. Yeah. This is the god who brought you up out of Egypt. It's a tamed version. It's a contained version. It's something we can control. It's something we made out of our own hands. This is Yahweh. So for me, in a, in, a po- in a Christendom situation that we are in, where most people in America identify as a Christian in some form or fashion, the problem with idolatry is not idols that are not identified with Yahweh, but those that we syncretize with Yahweh, that we say, that we make synonymous, which I think truth and the Bible are two of those things that we have made synonymous with Yahweh, and there are two things that we can try to control and try to understand and tame. So in our attempts to tame Yahweh, I think is the more dangerous version of idolatry than, for me, the almost silly version of a metal thing that's supposed to be a god. Wow. Yeah, that's good. I mean, and I think in my naivete, there's a temptation to think, oh, those silly ancient people <laughs> they're like how could you just worship some rock that you fashioned um, but mm-hmm. there's just more going on in that story well <clears throat> one thing that we talk about a lot on this podcast is the are the intellectual virtues mm-hmm. and i was kind of interested in your take on this because i think almost every time that i encounter disagreement i feel like there's some lack of intellectual virtue at play. So, and by intellectual virtue, I, I mean uh, having a rightly ordered soul toward the love of truth. And hopefully in that broad sense, like you're talking about in your book, like the wisdom truth of living life well. So go buy the book to learn more about wisdom truth. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a intellectual curiosity, the the genuine interest in really discovering what the truth is or humility, being willing to admit that you could be wrong. Yeah. Uh, or poise, just having this tranquil nature, like Tony was talking about, like not feeling threatened when one of the precious ideas that you've placed your identity in Which, are I mean, challenged. 
I don't know if not feeling threatened is even. I I feel threatened yeah, in those situations. Okay. It's more like I'm not reacting. I'm not responding as though this other person is a threat. There's sort of a choice there, but. Yeah, I like anybody else, even though I claim to try to practice these intellectual virtues. I don't like disagreement. I still want to be right. Nobody wants to discover that they're wrong, but it is a prerequisite for learning, you know, discovering mm -hmm. that you're wrong about something. You will. Yeah. Right. And Jared, this <laughs> quote really struck me in your book. This journey with love and truth must begin and end in the willingness to admit we could be wrong. And I just find that's so true. It just seems like. Uh, when we don't have that intellectual humility or willingness to be wrong, how can you even really get something off the ground? So I, my question for you is then, how do we help people step more into these intellectual virtues? How, that person that you're noticing is not exhibiting curiosity or humility or willingness to be wrong. And, you know, they're not people you can just walk away from. They're members of your own family, friends, in your church community or whatever, how do you go about bringing that into the world more, you know? Yeah, well, I'd be, you say you talk about these quite a bit, so maybe I can flip it back on you and just ask, what have you found? Well, at one level, it's modeling it yourself right. and not caving into, I guess, the pressure to try to be right. There's yeah. modeling. Um, well, I mean, I on that, I've just thinking about conflict in general i was i was having this thing thought the other day that man when you know that you're heading into a, a, a conversation that's going to be tense or where somebody disagrees with you we there's a really cool opportunity there to you know because everybody's kind of gearing up they're planning i'm going to come in with i'm practicing my arguments in my head and i know what i'm going to say and then they're going to say this or whatever but you have such a cool privilege to, to walk into that conversation and surprise them with love, you know, and like be Christ to them in that situation where they come out swinging and they're met with like, it's like, um, I don't know, it's like throwing a rock into a well and not hearing a splash. It's just, it's like, there's no reactivity there. And that's, that's such a fun privilege to be able to disarm people with love that way. So I think, I think, modeling it is huge in conversation yeah. for people and in particular too when i was reading uh your book you had this i don't know if it's i don't think it's original with you but you were expounding on it umwelt this idea mm. of what is that uh, i think u-m-w-e-l-t but it's pronounced umwelt uh it's kind of like your unique perspective on the world could you tell us a little bit about that because i think that yeah. matters when heading into these conversations to recognize umwelt yeah, it's just a, it's a scientific term that ethologists use to talk about the particular way an organism experiences its environment. Right. And that's because their sense organisms, their sense organs are all designed differently. So, a, you know, for instance, certain birds have an amazing way of seeing. They can see for miles. And so they're going to see the world literally differently than other organisms because they see things differently. Yeah. And every animal has this, and so do we. And, and if you think of our personality, so in the book I make this uh, argument that we all have our own umwelts. We weren't born to the same parents. We weren't born in the same cities. We weren't born in the same bodies. We weren't born the same uh, ethnicities. We have all these cultural conditions. We have all of these things that make a unique umwelt to us. And, uh, and that's important to recognize when we're trying to pursue truth, is that we have a filter what we might call our umwelt, through which we're experiencing the world. Can, can I ask, Jared, you know, as somebody who, 
you're saying you you grew up very sort of interested in the abstract and the intellectual and right thinking. What what was your turning point? What was your wake up call? When when did this click for you that oh hang on I think I've got my priorities wrong? Well, I think it started with the fact, to be honest, that I was a very sensitive kid. Yeah. So I was a very emotional kid as well, and so I think a lot of my over-intellectualizing was a defense mechanism. Hmm. So all that to say, I think the seed was always there, to right. be honest. Um, and then I never, just it's my disposition. So in some ways I think, it, I, just, I can't take credit for any of it. It just, I, I had a really hard time when I hurt people. I, I never wanted to hurt people. Yeah. And so to see visibly my posture toward these topics hurt people people who didn't need to be hurt. And you mentioned earlier, my heroes, I've, I eventually sw- swapped my heroes. My mm. heroes of the faith are the no name, no recognition, no platform, 80 year old women who serve on every committee, show up for everything, serve everyone. And when I tried to talk to them about theology, they would just wave their hand dismissively and say, I don't understand all that. That's over my head. <laughs> like those became my heroes. Yeah. And so keeping my kind of eyes on that cloud of witnesses helped me model something that I didn't grow up learning about. Oh, so good. I, I mean, I had a similar experience with coming into, you know, I came from a philosophy background as well and taught for a couple years. I just have been in ministry two years now. And not that the stuff I learned in seminary and the philosophy classroom isn't important. It's been valuable to me in thinking clearly, but uh, it just didn't seem to have the impact that I imagined it would all those hours in the classroom what people really want is for you to be present with them to hear their story to cry with them to laugh with them and they don't care about the Cartesian project in epistemology that we danced around earlier it's I mean they really don't care they'll do exactly what you said they'll hand wave like we don't that's too confusing we don't need to talk about that and they're kind of right you really don't often (laughs) need to dive into all those to achieve the good in the community that you that you want to. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Um, so kind of as we wrap up here, you, of course, you're co-host of the podcast Bible for Normal People. A huge question for that show is, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And I'm wondering if you could just, from your perspective, this snapshot in time right now, I know that's kind of like a... a ever evolving question for you guys but just to give our audience an idea what what does all this mean for how i treat this venerated text you know i've put on this pedestal for so long and it's the container of absolute truths like what or like you said jared it's become synonymous with yahweh you know how should we approach it this is my golden calf in a way yeah you know um what what yeah, is it what's another I mean, perspective to take yeah, I, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of generative ways of thinking about the Bible. Most of them are metaphors. I think it's important to recognize that um, we use a lot of metaphors when we talk about God and the Bible, and we, as we ought, because there are, as you said, the mystery of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, one metaphor that's been particularly generative that I've been very pleased with, have been very helpful, is thinking of the Bible as a compost pile. 
And I take this from... It's <laughs> not the most uh, flattering. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know some people get offended by that. But I, I take this from uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's a, an amazing Old Testament scholar. And he wrote this uh, really boring book called Texts Under Negotiation. Okay. Um, um. I, I wouldn't recommend anyone getting it. Um, but yeah, in it, it there's plenty of other, you know, sorry, Brueggemann. A lot of your stuff is amazing, great. This one's kind of boring. Um but in it, he has this. He uses a metaphor: the Bible is a compost pile, and and I've started creating this world out of this metaphor that I think is really beautiful. Which is, it is this rich deposit of all of this uh, God talk and all of these experiences with God and the walk that people had. And but if you, if we, if I leave it as a, a deposit of other people's experiences. I'm missing the rich opportunity to plant myself in it and have wow. something new and beautiful in my life grow out from it. Wow. And so I like it because it it, med, it it melds these worlds together where the Bible on its own without the lived experience of the current Christian community is dead. It's a pile of garbage. It is, mm. it is this rich deposit waiting for something to be rooted in it. And if we don't root ourselves in it, we are free-floating and disconnected from this great tradition, the great cloud of witnesses, the Spirit of God that is continuous from the beginning through now. And so I love that it's this metaphor that allows this dependency, this interdependence between the reader and our life and the text. Um, and so I really, really resonate with that idea that on its own, it's kind of dead without us. It's sort of, you know, it's, we're just floating and disconnected from the life source, you know, of which Christ is the head. And, but together, when we plant ourselves in this compost pile, they both find their purposes fulfilled. I love that. That's really cool. Yeah, I, similar analogy I've heard is, you know, the Bible being like a street sign. And so many people, instead of walking down the street, climb the post or climb the sign or mm. something. It's like missing what it's pointing to. Um, mm, right. It's not the end of itself. You know, it's pointing you to the, a living relationship with a living God that changes everything about the way you interact with the world and other people. And if it's not that, if it's not doing that, you've missed it, you know? And I would argue truth is exactly the same way. Mm. Truth is also a sign that points us to something else. But when we think truth is the goal, we do the same thing as we yeah. do with the Bible. We stand under it, thinking that standing under it and being inactive and having the right things is the goal instead of this embodiment towards something greater. Yeah. Yeah, like truth is something that you engage in to get something else, like the, an instrumental yeah. good rather than intrinsically or yep. inherently good. Yeah. Wow. No, well, that's fabulous. Thanks, Jared, for your time and, and coming on the podcast. Uh, I would love for our audience to pick up your book. I just uh, got it on Wednesday, uh, a little sneak preview, so I'm already halfway through it, can't put it down where can people find you online? Where, where do you want uh, people to check out your resources? Yeah, for the book, I would definitely say go to lovemattersmorebook.com. And if you do that, I don't know when this is coming out, but if you did that before September 8th when it comes out, we have a, a special three-part video series on how to disagree with people that you love. Oh, really? Um, and it's just walking through like tips and tricks um, that I've learned over the years, like very cool. practical practices for how to engage those conversations over Thanksgiving dinner or when we go back to visit family. And so you can get that for oh, for free if you pre-order the book. Great. Very cool. Very strong incentive. That's well done. Love matters more book. Dot com. Yes, yep. love matters more book. And it'll, dot com. it'll be in the show notes as well. Yep. Well, thanks, Jared. Where you, uh, you know, we love your work, 
And thanks for your time and your wisdom. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. All right, guys. We'll see you next time. See you later.